Welcome to the New England Law Review Honor Man podcast. I'm Volume 51's Business Managing Editor, Brianna Matusko. The New England Law Review is a law review publication of New England Law Boston, which is located in downtown Boston, Massachusetts. To learn more about our institution, visit the website at nesl.edu. And to learn more about our publication, go to our website, which is newenglrev.com. On our website, you can find our most recent blog posts and our past and current on-remand and New England Law Review issues. Today, I'm joined by participants Professor Alifair Burke, Judge Michael Ponzer, and Professor Peter Manis. Our panelists today were originally scheduled to speak at our live winter symposium on February 9th. However, winter storm Nico barreled into the Northeast the same day, and we were forced to cancel. This podcast is a platform for the topics we are going to discuss at the symposium. Alifair Burke is a professor of law at the Maurice A. Dean School of Law at Hofstra University, where she teaches criminal law and criminal procedure subjects. She is also the New York Times bestselling author of 11 novels and the co-author of the Under Suspicion series of novels with Mary Higgins Clark. Her most recent book, The X, has been nominated for an Edgar Award for Best Novel. Thank you for joining us today, Professor Burke. That's my pleasure. Thank you. Judge Michael A. Ponzer was born in Chicago, Illinois in 1946 and received his B.A. magna cum laude from Harvard College in 1969 and his law degree from Yale Law School in 1975. In 1993, he was nominated by President Bill Clinton as a U.S. District Judge and after confirmation by the Senate, was sworn in on March 14, 1994. In 2011, he took senior status and began handling a reduced docket. Judge Ponzer has taught as an adjunct professor at Yale Law School, Western New England School of Law, and the University of Massachusetts. In December of 2013, the New York publisher Open Road Media released his first novel, The Hanging Judge, which went on to be a New York Times bestseller. Judge Ponzer received the Legal Writing Institute's 2015 Golden Pen Award for the high quality of his legal writing. He lives in Amherst, Massachusetts, and continues to handle substantial judicial duties while working on his next novel. Thank you for joining us, Judge Ponzer. Happy to be here. Professor Manis teaches administrative law, environmental law, constitutional law, and land use at New England Law Boston. He joined the New England Law faculty in 1992 after serving as an environmental lawyer at the Boston law firm of Goodwin Proctor. He has written numerous articles analyzing the environmental movement and is co-author of several books on environmental law. His novel, Fickle, has recently been published in its second edition by Diversion Books, and his second novel, The Dorchester Five, is nearing its publication date. Thank you for joining us today, Professor Manis. So glad you're having me. Thank you all so much. To start off our discussion, my first question is for all of the panelists. For those of our listeners who have not had the pleasure of reading your novels, could you please start up by telling us a little bit about your books? I wrote my first novel, uh, Judgment Calls, I started it shortly after I left my job as a prosecutor in Portland, Oregon. It was based loosely on experiences I had there, and I think my initial motivation was to sort of bring prosecutors to life because I was a big fan of crime fiction, and I always noticed that whenever prosecutors showed up, they would sort of get in the way and say, here, say an objection, and then disappear. (laughs) And I thought that the job of a prosecutor was much more interesting than that, so I thought I had something to offer. Um, Since then, I wrote three books in that series. I've written five in a series about a detective named Ellie Hatcher in New York, and I've written three standalones, but they all tend to use suspense, but through the lens of people who, who work with the criminal justice system. My characters tend to be lawyers or police officers. Um, I write noir, 
which is uh, our books in which there is an anti-hero, somebody who um, makes a major mistake in life and then pays the price through the course of the, of the novel. I've written two novels so far. Fickle is told all in the form of a blog, and it's really about cyber-stalking, and it gets quite dark. And The Dorchester Five, which is coming out soon, is a vigilante book about five guys who make a big mistake and a vigilante who enters, a female vigilante who enters each of their lives and aims to dispatch them. I am a, have been for some time a, a frustrated English major. I studied English literature for quite a while before going to law school and thought I wanted to be a medievalist until I found out how hard it was and decided to become an attorney. Um, I've been, I was a magistrate judge for 10 years and then a U.S. District Court judge for the last 23 years. In 2011, I presided over a death penalty case in Western Massachusetts, and uh, it was a really searing professional, moral, and, uh, and emotional experience, and I decided to uh, write a book about it. It took me seven years to get it done working around my day job, and the goal was really to take the reader's hand and bring the reader up on the bench with me. Now, there's that wonderful poem by Robert Frost, which talks about wanting to, someone to take someone and stop to watch the water clear in the spring. And he says, I shan't be gone long. You come too. And that's really what I'm trying to say to the readers. You come too. Come, here's a chair. Sit next to me up on the bench and see what it's like to be up here. And I try to do that with the other major figures in the process, the prosecutor, the defense attorney, the families the families of the victim, and so on, and in the process, create a story that's accessible. I have an, another book coming out in June, uh, which is called The One-Eyed Judge, about the same judge, David Norcross, mm -hmm. which is a, a case about child pornography and an Amherst College professor who receives a contraband CD and finds himself being charged with receipt of child pornography. Wow. Another very difficult moral problem. Absolutely. That actually yeah. is a great segue into the next question, which is, can you all sort of describe the process of writing your novels? I'm especially interested in how you and are able to juggle your day jobs as lawyers, judges, and professors while crafting your novels. Wait. <laughs> um, I sound like I'm the only one who writes books on a deadline, so I actually do. I've been lucky enough to... You know, when I wrote my first novel, sort of, I figured I'd have a book that just sat on my bookshelf that I could point to and be like, hey, I wrote a novel a long time ago. And um, I was lucky enough that when my agent sold it, everybody just assumed it was part of a series and assumed that I had a second novel all ready to go. And I said, oh, yes, I definitely do. And I am filled with many more ideas. <laughs> and I've continued to publish about a book a year since then. And it does require a lot of discipline. I'm basically my own tough boss. I, I set word goals. I set my schedule is usually more than a year planned out, sort of what projects I'm going to work on when. And I just, it's a good lesson actually for law students to always be aware of your time. You know, if I'm not working, <laughs> then I'm spending time with my husband. I'm in the moment. I'm paying attention to what I'm supposed to be doing with my friends and family. But if I'm working, you know, I turn off my internet. I, I hunker down, I keep myself in the chair, and I definitely just keep myself on a schedule. I think it also helps as a legal academic. If, you know, I don't have a client calling me, I don't have a really terribly busy schedule, I'm very lucky that I get paid to think about and write about the law. And so over the years, I've managed to kind of tie the two professions together that, you know, every day I'm writing something. Sometimes it's a law review article. 
sometimes it's a very gripping committee report for the faculty. (laughs) 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 Sometimes it's a a fictional story, but I I kind of keep those muscles working at all times. I'm always writing. I, too, have to uh, fit my creative writing in between those gripping faculty reports, (laughs) sometimes, uh, which involves sometimes a certain level of creativity as well. Um, You know, I have to say that writing fiction is a huge, huge endeavor, and so the way I do it is to not think about that. Any any big job or any big project I've ever gotten into, the way I've, I've gotten myself to do it is to not think about how much work it's going to be because it's going to turn out to be twice as much anyway. So I do I do just like Alifair. I turn off everything when I need to write, and I write pretty relentlessly, and I sit down to write when I'm not in the mood for writing, and lo and behold, I get in the mood pretty quickly because <laughs> it's something I like to do. Uh, my stuff is not really about the law. There tends to be a legal aspect to it because it's crime fiction, but it's not nearly as focused on the law as, as either of the, my fellow panelists here. It's more of a way of escape for me. It's a different type of imaginative work. For me, I, I had been playing with writing fiction since I was in my 20s, and I've got one complete novel and three other novels that didn't go anywhere. And when I was in law school, I, I had in some ways the misfortune of getting a short story published in Red Book, for which I was paid $1,500 in 1973, which sounded like a fortune. If I sold 10 short stories a year, I could live on that. (laughs) Uh, uh, And I continued to write, but never got anything else published until I began working on The Hanging Judge, starting in around 2003 or, or 2004. I write, I have a day job, as my co-panelists do, I have a schedule. I write Saturday and Sunday mornings from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m., and I have a little poster on my bulletin board that says the same instructions you give to your dog are the same instructions you give to yourself as a writer, and those instructions are sit today. <laughs> you have to get those hours in. I don't have a word count, but I do sit and stay, and you have to close the door, and you have to not mow the lawn, and you have to resist all the temptations to do other things because the experience of writing is very provocative. It gets down inside you, and there's part of you that tenses up and really doesn't want to face it, and you have to have to make yourself do it. And the first one, I, I, I don't know if Professor Burke found this, but when you're writing the first one, you have no idea whether it will ever go anywhere. It's a huge act of faith oh, yeah. just to keep going. Later on, now I, I feel so much better because my editor and my agent and my publisher are stuck with me, and I'm beginning to work on the third one, and I know there's a good chance it'll go somewhere. But when you first start out, you don't know whether it's going to go anywhere at all, except into a cardboard box in your closet. <laughs> yeah, a leap of faith is a really good way of describing it. It's also sort of presumptuous. It's like, what am I doing? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you always yeah. have to do it for yourself and accept the fact that if, if nothing else, you've gotten it done for yourself. But boy, it's, it's, it's a leap of faith. Yep, yep. The last book... Uh, the the one I judge, uh, I, I managed to get that one done in only three years. So uh, I'm hoping maybe the next one I can get down to two years. I really admire Professor Burke for being, having the discipline to turn out one a year yeah, and work as a law professor at the same time. Well, I don't spend all those hours sitting on a bench. <laughs> so the next question I have for all of you is, why do you think people are so interested in this genre? Has there always been an interest in this genre? Or do you think the current state of affairs in the world, coupled with the overabundance of shows like Law and Order have piqued people's interests. 
I could try to tackle that question because I'm not sure I have much to say about it, and I'd be interested in hearing what Professor Burke and Professor Manis think. But I, I don't think there's anything new about people being interested in in justice. I think the presentation of it or the context of it evolves, but the interest in, in what is just uh, you know, goes back to Oedipus or Aeschylus and Agamemnon sacrificing his daughter and then his wife killing him and then his son killing his wife and the furies coming down and what's fair and what's just uh, is a playground and childhood issue that is very deep inside us from very early on with a child standing in front of you in tears and saying, well, that's not fair. And I think that <laughs> side of the, the dilemma is something that's always appealed to people. And we are only the most current manifestations of that interest. Yeah, I think it's kind of a safe way for people to play with things that they're curious about. It's, it's almost like a roller coaster. People like to go on roller coasters because they're terrified in the middle, but they kind of know that they're going to come back, hopefully, <laughs> to the same place yeah. when you land. And yeah, I think crime fiction gives people that same kind of thrill where the world feels really upside down in the middle and you're able to kind of expose yourself to the darkest parts of humanity. But then there's always been this implicit promise that there's sort of justice restored at the end. But I do think that that is starting to evolve, like that, that kind of how much resolution the audience expects, I think, is changing. And if you think about that podcast serial and mm. making of a murderer and jinx, and there also seems to be this true crime obsession right now, the O.J. Simpson, the re revisiting the O.J. Simpson case, this acknowledgement that sometimes the system doesn't work and people either get away with it or innocent people get convicted. And I think people are really fascinated right now about process and are getting less and less concerned about whether in the end justice is served fictionally. They're actually willing to accept endings that I think would have been unsatisfactory maybe 10 or 20 years mm -hmm. ago. Yeah. yeah, I completely agree with both of the other comments. I think that it was earlier in the 1900s when people got into the idea of, of really seeing the process of being a lawyer or being a cop. I think um, prior to that, it was the excitement of being, say, an amateur detective. It was a big deal, and everybody could sort of live vicariously through the amateur detective because we could all imagine being a little old lady or retired cop or something like that. But, you know, the, uh, the Perry Mason series was really, uh, it really went out and did something different when they showed and uh, talked about the, the process of being a lawyer. And he does. If you go back to some of the earlier Perry Mason books or old Stanley Gardner books, he, he does he gives a little set of moralizing at the end about what a lawyer's job is and how the lawyer isn't after justice, but after representation of the client and that sort of thing. And then if you're old enough, and, and actually, to be honest, I'm not, the, the, the Naked City sort of uh, came out and did that with, with police procedurals and just following the process, not really caring about the resolution, as Al, as Al Fair said. And I think now we are a sort of more sophisticated culture that really want to understand the process of, of law and justice and with a full understanding that sometimes it doesn't get wrapped up at the end. One of my favorite uh, series is the Lord Peter Whimsey series, um, Dorothy Sayers. And a lot of times, uh, uh, well, one of the things that the books emphasize is that Lord Peter solves the crime and then is horribly depressed when the person he's exposed is, uh, is executed. And there's, the situation is not unresolved, but the author confronts the sadness of the process and the moral complexity of the process mm -hmm. uh, in a way which is uh, really powerful. 
one of the characters in The Hanging Judge is the defendant, and the book works through the question of whether this man actually committed this murder. But in the very first interview with his lawyer, he confesses that he denies that he's committed the murder, which the lawyer doesn't know whether to believe or not. Mm -hmm. But he confesses freely that he committed another murder a few years ago and hadn't gotten caught for it. So right there, we're, we're jumping into a complicated moral landscape. In fact, I tell people, if you can't stand a complicated moral landscape, you really probably better stay away from the American system of justice or any system of justice, because there's this great deal of complexity once you enter into it. Next up, what, what did you learn from the other contributors' pieces, or what did you find most interesting? Mm, well, I just finished. I was the last one to turn my head. <laughs> recently, um, so I wanted to reflect on what everybody else said first. Unfair advantage, I suppose, to everyone else's homework first. But what was amazing to me is how much consensus there was. I hope people do take the time to read the symposium because all of the contributions are terrific and rich, but and very, very different, but there were some points to me that emerged that we all seemed to agree about, and I'll take one for an example. You know, even when I teach criminal procedure, I tend to teach it, when I worked at the DA's office, we taught, search. one of my jobs was I was one of the people who would go and actually teach search and seizure to the police. Mm -hmm. And I will confess that there was a tendency <laughs> the way you taught it was, okay, here's the rule, and then here are all the exceptions. It was almost like you taught them how to work their way around the rules. Like, oh, but you don't have to get a warrant if any of these things happen. And, and I think what, what most of us wound up commenting on is that just the inclusion of formal law on the page in fiction really doesn't add very much. People aren't reading fiction, to, you know, to find out what the warrant requirement looks like. For example, um, the, the use of formal law in a book, in a fictional work, becomes interesting when that really just provides a framework um, for the characters where people, it almost becomes like a cat and mouse game using legal rules where everybody's mining the legal rules for the nooks and crannies of, you know, how do I avoid it? So the police officers, you know, set up an interaction to make it look completely consensual so that they don't have to have probable cause, so they don't have to Mirandize. Um, meanwhile, you know, the defense lawyers are trying to find ways to embarrass the prosecution or embarrass the police by kind of showing the ways that they were trying to avoid the underlying spirit of the rules. So I thought that was, because I do that, it's funny, I'm conscious about it when I teach, but I sort of, t I tend to teach it from that perspective, but I really wasn't conscious of how I use it constantly in my own work fictionally, that when I do include formal law on the page, it tends to be from the perspective of, and then what comes next? It's everybody being kind of crafty and wily yeah. and working their way around the rules in, in sort of these strategic ways. Yes, absolutely. I, I think that the fiction can allow us in some ways to depict how these rules actually work out in real life as we've witnessed it. I've listened to a lot of drug deals, recordings of drug deals on my headphones and listened to people talking, setting up drug deals on confidential informants working with people are trying to buy from. In the beginning of the one-eyed judge, the police come banging in. They have a warrant. They come banging into this professor's house. They fan out. They do a security sweep to make sure there are no guns on the premises. Turns out there is a gun. And they sit the professor down and begin talking to him. And at some point, the lead FBI agent is trying to Mirandize the professor, and he gets interrupted by one of the other agents who crowds over and starts asking the professor questions and waving the, the DVD at him and saying, is this yours? When did it just arrive? 
and the professor is answering in a scattered offhand way. And all of his statements come back to haunt him later on and become an issue about whether they're uh, admissible. There's another scene where the professor is trying to get to an Amherst College undergraduate who has some important information. And he clearly sweet talks the kid into letting him into his apartment and sitting down with him. And he's very, very friendly and jovial. And the kid is just committing one felony after another, <laughs> not knowing, <laughs> lying to the FBI, oh, which is a five-year felony, and so on. And, and all he thinks is going on is he's having a friendly conversation. So you can use the fiction to try to really get into the actual workings of the rules uh, in the flesh and blood situation. And I think we all love to do that. One thing I noticed in the acts is obviously Olivia Randall really knows how to maneuver her way through the law, even when hungover or in a, in a, <laughs> or in a bad mood and, or so emotionally involved in the case. So, and <clears throat> I was wondering, like, while I was reading it, I wonder if readers who don't, who aren't lawyers would sort of look down on that for, for her not, you know, just sometimes she sort of talks her way into something and acts a little tougher than she should, sort of imports something that might not be there. And to me, of course, as a lawyer who was in those situations and not, not handling them as well as she did, <laughs> I, was, I was incredibly impressed and thought, this woman, I, I, want, I want to hire her when I, when I don't commit a murder. <laughs> but, get, but get accused, and I and I wondered if you thought about that, if you worried about that, that your typical reader might actually look down on her and think she's not wedded to the cause of justice. It's always hard to kind of unparse like your own and co-ed thoughts about a character, because of course by now I know her and I know what happened. Yeah. It's hard for me to turn back the clock and say how did I first envision her. But looking at it now, I mean, I do. When the reader first sees her, it's kind of in her worst moment, right? She's lying to her boss. She's hungover and she's in bed with someone else's husband. It's not a great first impression. Um, but I did want her to be different than kind of the, the stereotype of criminal defense lawyers in fiction because they're, people tend to write about two types. Either they're good at their job because they're super earnest and care, yeah. or they're cynical and bad at their job and lazy and just cashing checks and not working hard. She's actually fairly cynical about the work, but is really good at her job. Mm -hmm. And she actually you kind of get the impression that she's good whether she cares or not. And this is a case that she actually cares about. And it tends to bring out the best in her, both professionally and personally, in the long run, without giving too much away. I mean, I do think that's one of the important questions that fiction raises. Can lawyers be good at their jobs and be really bad people? I happen to think they can be. So <laughs> they don't have to be. But, you know, lawyers don't have to, to be good people to be good lawyers, I guess. Same was true for writers. Uh, I remember when I read, I read John, the, bio, the biography of John Cheever by John Cheever's daughter. I really liked John Cheever, especially his short stories. Uh -huh. And I read, God, this guy is a jerk. Separating those two things later on when I read some of his uh, fiction. One of the things that I really liked uh, about reading Fickle was that it really gave me a chance to see how you can use uh, social media as a way to create a compelling plot. I just went to a reading a couple of days ago by an author by the name of Ellie Lippman, who writes somewhat light sort of romances, and she has quite a bit of her story using emails and texts. And, she, and people, someone asked her how that worked. And she said, you, you know, as a writer, you have to learn how to do these things. And I, I just turned 70 last August, and these things are not second nature to me. <laughs> Although I, I do quite a bit on the computer, and including texting my kids and 
so on. But I, I just thought that that, that was really uh, interesting that you decided to use that as the vehicle for your plot. And I wonder, Professor Manis, how you came to that conclusion. What inspired you to decide to do it that way? Yeah, you know, I can't remember. I've thought about that a lot. <laughs> but I, in, in order to do it, I, I thought it would just be very interesting to have this unreliable narrator because people can say anything uh, that they want on the internet. Mm -hmm. But in order to do it, I had to get onto young people's blogs and sort of follow along. And, 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 and then I found that there's a lot of people and that people want a lot of audience kind of watching along. I sort of learned the rhythms, the, the way that people talk and how freely they talk on the internet. And it kind of helped me to sort of flesh it out, pick up the pace and that sort of thing. One of the things I particularly uh, uh, enjoyed in the X was the way that you used the legal system as pivot points in the plot, very, very adroitly, without getting too technical, like the decision, the bail decision, the second bail decision, the issue of exculpatory evidence, what is going to reveal the bearing the exculpatory evidence. Without getting too technical, they became really great places to where, where the flow of the plot could change a little bit in direction or widen out or narrow. And that was a very great way of combining the depiction of the actual legal system, but woven into a compelling story. And do you do you kind of plan that out ahead of time? Um, no, you know, I don't. Like I said, I kind of just start writing. And I think it's natural to me, maybe it's because, you know, we're all lawyers, so you, you kind of learn how to tell a story around a legal structure. Because when you go to trial, for example, you can't just go in and tell a story. You have to structure it, you know, witness by witness. It's kind of a somewhat artificial structure, but it starts to feel natural to you as a lawyer. And I sometimes I think as a novelist, I tend to find the structure of a plot through process, through legal process. I think it helps me find my way a little bit. And mm -hmm. The toughest books I have, I've got two standalones where the main characters are not legal actors. They're just regular old people and bad things happen to them. And I find those really hard to write because like, I'm like, well, I don't know what happens next. I need a legal structure. <laughs> so, um, I, I think the natural flow of Olivia's client's case became sort of a, a found structure to the plot. Yeah. But I, I do I try to avoid, I, my early books have much more legal detail than my recent books because over time I've come to see it as sometimes getting in the way more than helping. I ask myself, you know, why am I including this legal point right now? Does it advance character? Does it advance plot? Does it advance the setting of the story? If not, I, I tend to take it out. When I first wrote the, the, the Hanging Judge, uh, got through the manuscript the first time, it was 180,000 words. And the agent that I was working with at that time said, you, man, you've got to get this down to a little over 100,000 words, particularly as a first novel, or this thing is not going anywhere. And I had a chapter that I had worked on so hard, it was quite long, and it described a series of motions for summary judgment that the judge was hearing in all sorts of what I thought were fascinating cases. And my wife, who's also a pretty very good writer, read this, and she said, man, this is a snooze. Get rid of I said, but it just shows exactly what judges face every day. You know, I know. We're probably more judgment. interested in that. You've got to realize uh, most uh, readers uh, aren't federal judges or law professors. Out it went. Out it went. Right out the window. You know? okay, all the, yeah. yeah, the Telecommunications Act and the placement of a wireless cell tower in the middle of the town square is an interesting controversy, but it's a distraction. <laughs> You, d you did include, you included that old case 
And I thought that was yeah. uh, that, that that was something you probably had to insist on. And I really thought it added. I thought it was just well, really you. fascinating. Well, I, I have a, in, in, in The Hanging Judge a, a little portions of a plot that actually takes place, as uh, just uh, Professor Manis is referring to, back in 1806. And actually, when I did the original draft and, and the publisher was looking at it, and the editor said, you've got to get down to 100,000 words, I actually threw that out. And the book did not have that in. And when I went to the publisher, I started talking about it. And they said, wow, that's interesting. Put it back in. And I was glad I did, um, partly because it, it does. it's just a fantastic story about two poor Irishmen who were picked up in Northampton in 1805 for a murder they almost certainly didn't commit. And after a one-day trial, were found guilty and executed a few months later right outside Northampton. There's still a memorial to them. And the story it is, is in itself really interesting, but it also has a wonderful sort of contrapuntal relationship to the contemporary plot, oh, yeah. where we think we've evolved so far and none of the problems and prejudices from back in 1805, especially against Catholics and Irish, we, we certainly don't, We certain, our process is certainly not contaminated by that now, when of course we know it is. And there are very, very obvious parallels. To sort of build off the discussion of characters, do you think that writing about flawed protagonists perpetuates the negative stereotypes about lawyers or judges? Or do you think that characters have to have flaws in order to be more relatable and interesting? I like flawed people in real life more than I like Sometimes I'm, I'm, it's interesting to me that I got a lot of emails early on from readers of the X saying, oh, this is really unusual for you because, you know, normally you like such likable characters and now you turn to an unlikable woman as your protagonist. And I was actually kind of shocked that everyone didn't love Olivia. <laughs> I just like her quite likable. She's, I agree. <laughs> I might not want her hanging around my husband, but other than that, she's really pretty likable. <laughs> so uh, I, I enjoy the flaws, and I think lawyers, too, need to be included there. Like I said before, I think the difference for me is flawed as a person and you happen to be a lawyer is one thing. I try not, I think the trope of, you know, all all lawyers are crooked or, you know, I, I don't think people believe that and I also don't think it makes for very interesting fiction. I mean, you can have a crooked lawyer or something, but I think unless you're showing people to be pretty three-dimensional, I'm not sure that that's that that's going to draw much of a readership, is, is my guess. Mm-hmm. Both the lawyers and the hanging judge, I thought, were, were really interesting characters. I was particularly taken with Bill Redpath. I just Every chapter with him in it was uh, was a go-to chapter for me. <laughs> and I, I was trying to sort of figure out why, you know, just sort of the unaffected way that he plowed ahead through through the justice system. Yeah. I, I, I don't think there is anybody who isn't flawed, not just in fiction, but in real life. Right. <laughs> uh, everybody has flaws, and so you're trying to create a relatable character that inevitably uh, means that they're, they're going to have flaws. I mean, we have the sort of saintly Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird, mm-hmm. but, we, but we do know that a, a, another look at him feels a sort of complacency and acceptance, in some ways a connivance, uh, with a system that is brutally ugly uh, and that he's, he's a part of and is to some extent facilitating. So, yes, he's a, he's a lovely man, and Gregory Peck did a beautiful job with him in the movie. Right. But there's uh, something underneath the surface there swimming around that's very...
tries to grapple with that, maybe successfully, maybe not, but it really, really brought out. So everybody's, everybody's flawed. I was particularly interested, Professor Mance, when you said that in, in The Hanging Judge, the, the, there's a parallel plot where the judge character, his name is David Narkoff, is falling in love. So he's handling a death penalty case. He's a widower, and he's falling in love at the same time, somewhat against his will. And there's a scene where he and the woman he's getting involved with have a terrible fight. Her name is Claire. And you were saying that you, you, you were really turned off by Judge Narcross and had a hard time reading about him after that because you thought he was unfair to Claire. And I put an exclamation mark in the margin when I was reading that because most of the readers who come back come to me blame Claire for that argument and dislike her and not him. So maybe I'm doing something right. They're both very flawed. And they're... They're trying to come together, and, uh, you know, when you're falling in love and deciding to be with something, one of the things you have to confront is the flaws of the person you've fallen in love with in the same way that you have to confront the flaws of your professional persona. I think I, I might have had a little crush on her, so... <laughs> I think she made it... I thought she made an innocent mistake, and I thought she was the one who tried to admit that, and... He, he, he was having a, a really bad moment in the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, he, he just had to declare a mistrial in a case that had taken him weeks to set up. And, and, um, and it was his fault. Because of an innocent error she made. Yeah, I forgave him by the end. But, but <laughs> thank you. I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. Because he's going to be coming around again I, in the next novel. I'm <laughs> looking forward to it. Too. I don't, want it, I don't want the cloud over him to be too dark. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to pick it up as soon as it's available. Is it available for pre-order yet? Yes, it is. Well, yeah. all right. Yeah, I've got a few reviews out from, from the advanced reader's copy, so that's all that part of the process. One of the things that's so wonderful about doing this, well, I, I, I expect whether you're a professor or you're a judge, is a sense of kind of exercising different muscles. Yeah. And sort of building a new room onto the house of your character and getting a chance to run around in there and do something different and, and entering the world of publishing and also trying to create a plot is just so invigorating and exhilarating. I, I, I love that side of it, even though there's a lot of, lot of potato peeling. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so any chance that Olivia will rear her head again? Uh, she actually is. It, she, the next book is not about her, but she is someone's attorney in the next book. Okay. So, um, so whether she, I think that will remain true. I've got to make a decision about whether she's there enough to warrant her presence, but I think so. <laughs> but it's not squarely about her. I was kind of surprised like when that readers wanted to see her again, because I felt like we saw enough of her at the end that you have some sense of where she winds up. But mm -hmm. I guess people, there, there might still be something to be said about her. I never yeah. know. I say about how much I plan things out, but I, <laughs> I plan my work out. I don't plan my yeah. things out very well. Yeah. They just sort of happen. I, yeah. I kind of want to see her post-hangover. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if she's as interesting. I'm like, oh. Yeah, yeah, right, right. You can get bland. <laughs> That's interesting to hear what you said about uh, building the story, uh, Professor Burke, because I'm, I'm sort of the same way. There's an interesting balance between sort of having an idea of where you're going, at least in my case, but not having a detailed outline of every step of where the plot is and where it's going to end up. So the combination of sort of having an intuitive and maybe a few notes about what, what you're doing. But in writing, you do find that the plot takes you over sometimes, and you find characters, for example, in my 
in the hang judge and also in the one-eye judge, which is coming up, the law clerks have a, a pretty important role. And I didn't realize that when I first started writing the hang judge. I thought, well, I got, you know, he's in chambers. He's got to have right. some law clerks. Mm -hmm. And I put them in, and they all of a sudden they began to blossom as characters. Right. And that was really, really fun. That's always a good feeling. I think um, as someone who doesn't plot things out, it's, it's, it's almost – I now trust the pro my process, at least, that if I get to know the characters and I know roughly what my plot's about, the characters kind of drive the scene-by-scene -scene plotting, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So as long as I kind of know why these characters matter and what their relationship is to whatever the central story is about, the plot sort of takes care of itself in a weird way. Yeah. <laughs> it always seems to work. It starts going mm -hmm. organic a little bit. <laughs> One of the things that I've heard is the phrase, sometimes you have to kill your darlings, that you create a character and fall in love with it and then pursue the character too far. And I, I had a problem with that in my original way too big draft, and I had two or three characters who I had to just completely excise. Judge Norcross, uh, the district court judge in the, in the first draft of The Hang Judge, has a daughter named Jessica, and their relationship is really fun and really interesting but just didn't have the space to carry it. I um, hope you saved all those pages. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. They're all there. <laughs> you might have half a book already sitting there. <laughs> that's right. That's right. There's, there's some kids on the way. She'll have her turn, I think, somewhere down the line. Well, one last question I have for you guys before I sort of open it up to see if you have any comments for each other is, are there novels out there that you feel do a disservice to the profession by lacking the professional knowledge needed to accurately describe things like courtroom scenes, discovery, interrogation, etc.? And do you think you have to be a lawyer to write accurately about crime in the justice system? I definitely don't think you need to be a lawyer. I mean, one of the best crime writers I know is Michael Connolly, and he was a journalist. And so he watches those worlds with the journalist's eye mm -hmm. and is able to accurately depict a courtroom, a police precinct, the inside of a drug deal. I mean, he really writes with a specific too that I think many people would envy, and he doesn't have legal training. You know, I, people who are not lawyers who decide to pick up the typewriter or laptop and take a stab at it, I, I think the difficulties are knowing when to ask. Right, to, mm -hmm. to kind of know when you're in technical territory where you might need some clarification, but without getting bogged down by it. I mean, I actually give writing seminars sometimes for lay people about sort of how to use a lot of your advantage as a fiction writer. Um, so sort of don't be afraid to ask if you think you're going out too far on a limb. Mm -hmm. But I do think the biggest mistake someone can make is that they just get the setting wrong. Yeah. If you don't know, you know, what it feels like, you know, lawyers talk speak differently, correct me if I'm wrong, Your Honor, but I think lawyers speak differently <laughs> in chambers, for example, when they're off the record than they do when they're mm -hmm. on the record. And those Certainly. are the kinds of things you have to know, because when you said, does anyone do a disservice, if, if characters don't speak differently in the hallway or in chambers than they do in the courtroom, that make, that's the kind of thing that makes me want to throw a book down, <laughs> not sure. because they messed up the Miranda rule or something like that. Mm -hmm. So it's more a matter of getting the setting and the culture down. It's just like you wouldn't set a book in Oklahoma and make it look like New York City. <laughs> right. You have to know your setting. Yeah, when I when I started writing, I felt vulnerable about the about the cop procedural, how cops pro progress, because my exposure to that was TV and movies, and I wasn't sure how how accurately that was. You can find resource books and make sure you get you get the little things right. 
Um, and, and a few of those go a long way. When I'm reading a book and there's a lawyer and, and I see the legal process and it's just dead wrong, it makes me presume that somebody's lazy. And then what else is mm -hmm. going to be lazy about the book? Yeah, I, I don't have so much of a problem with books as I do with uh, television and film. Oh, yeah. And um, <laughs> my wife's gotten to the point where she doesn't like to go to movies that have courtroom scenes in them because I'm squirming around so much. Throwing uh, popcorn. Yeah. <laughs> oh, for God's sakes, and things like that, and people going, shh. <laughs> there, was a, there was a movie a couple of years ago called The Judge, yeah. uh, which had Robert Duvall in it. Yeah. It was yep. just appallingly bad. I mean, the courtroom <laughs> scene was just absolutely horrible. And I don't know I don't know whether they had a consultant at all for that. And I, I have a friend, John Katzenbach, whose books have been made into movies, and other people who I know have gone through that. And sometimes the requirements of drama are trumping what goes on in the courtroom. So, for example, one thing that happens is a lawyer, when he's cross-examining, will approach the witness and lean on the witness box and breathe into the witness face and start shouting at him. <laughs> and, and the... I'm talking to him, he said, yeah, well, that's good for the cameraman because they have a nice tight scene that way with the two of them, right? And I said, you know, where is the judge? This is this is terrible. And I really have a, a hard time with that. I, I mentioned in, in the piece that I wrote that I had a friend who was an assistant U.S. attorney who had a 10-second rule in which he said that any time he's watching the depiction of a courtroom yeah. scene where he can't find, pick up a sustainable objection to a question put to the witness within 10 seconds, he has to reread the federal rules of evidence. So there's you know, all kinds of really incredible I love things. that point. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> Last night I just was watching one on television and the person was saying, well, that, that evidence can't come in because it's entrapment. And I, was, I, I said, that is not entrapment. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so sometimes it matters and sometimes it doesn't matter. Sometimes you're just being a fuss pot. Which is, <laughs> sometimes it's a really legitimate objection. Well, thank you, guys. Um, does anyone have anything to add or any comments for the other panelists? The only comment I have is I really love the happenstance of being able to uh, read your books and have a chance to participate in this conversation. It's really terrific. I guess one thing that I really enjoyed about the X was, was the role of the judge, who, who was, was a decent, hardworking person who was trying to do the right thing and, and actually succeeding to a large extent doing the right thing. But was also totally clueless, which is right. often what I feel like. Sneaky lawyers aren't telling him anything. They're putting together a deal in their logic, and, and maybe in, in, in just in the greater world is a, a reasonable way to work this out. But it's a really uh, interesting way that they do it, and the fact that the judge is up there looking carefully at everything and trying to do the best thing, but is really unaware of a lot of things, and believe me, as a judge, you really feel like you're riding on the tip of the iceberg a lot of the time, and two-thirds of the stuff that's keeping the iceberg afloat is beneath the water and, and outside of your sight, and you, you have to uh, cope with that the best you can. Uh, I thought that was uh, very... Well, I appreciate that coming from you. I was curious. I didn't want to put you on the spot and ask you something that you weren't allowed to comment on, but I was wondering if judges get some sense in their stomach sometimes that there's something going on here that someone's not telling me. Yeah. <laughs> That's an off-the-record yeah. and unspoken. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that, there is a sense of that. And then there's a question of when do you step in to, to push that? And sometimes right. you, really, you really need to. And sometimes you have to just let it, let the world turn.
mm-hmm. and allow it to happen. I've, I've had situations with defendants who come in to plead guilty, and, you know, it's obvious that they're doing the, the best thing for themselves by doing it. It's fairly obvious that they're guilty. It's, it's pretty obvious that they really would prefer not to plead guilty, and it's pretty obvious that they don't. if they don't plead guilty, they're going to get buried. Mm-hmm. And so there you are. You have a defendant who is in a very, very tough spot, making mm-hmm. a very, very tough decision about what the best thing to do is about a, a really horrible situation. And you're, you're watching that, trying to do your best to make sure it's fair. And sometimes, uh, I, I do feel most of the time, I'm, despite its flaws, I'm really proud to have a role in our justice system. And I, I say that being quite critical. I've given talks and written papers about aspects of the system, particularly what's been going on in the criminal justice system in mm-hmm. the last 30 years, and mm-hmm. horrible and indefensible expansion of our prison population and, and so yeah. on. It's really, really dreadful. But if I look at the history of the world for the last 10,000 years of recorded history, and I look at the globe today, and I look around at all of the systems of justice that have been tried, all of them are deeply flawed, deeply mm-hmm. human. And the American one, that's because I feel a loyalty to it, seems to me to work as hard as any system ever has mm-hmm. to try to work around those problems and be truly just. It often fails, certainly flawed, but... Um, It's a noble effort, and there are a lot of people who are sincerely trying to make it work. And that's uh, fun to write about. That seems like a nice optimistic note to end on. Yeah. (laughs) We're not so we're not so bad. (laughs) It is. That's a thoughtful a thoughtful note. But I would I'm dedicated to getting into the conversation. This one last note that X has been nominated for an Edgar, and I was just delighted to see that. And I just wanted to make sure that Alifair knew that we have a statue of Edgar Allan Poe in Boston, right in the middle of the city. It's a pretty new statue. It makes, I did not know that. It, it's, it's a, it shows him sort of rushing down the sidewalk. He's just a slightly larger than life, and I think it would make a fantastic selfie. <laughs> the next time I'm in Boston, particularly if I don't get something nice. sent home with a little Edgar statue for my desk, I will stop yeah, yeah. and look at the very large one. You can put your arm around his shoulders and photo bomb him. Yeah, photo bomb him. Yeah, good luck with that. Thanks, That's great. Congratulations. And um, I also appreciate everybody's participation in the symposium when the law review first proposed it, I was like, oh, I don't know if you'll be able to get people who are going to want to participate. This was such a treat. Wonderful. Thank you. Great idea. Thank you all again for participating today. I really appreciate it. I know it's tough to reschedule, but this has been wonderful. The articles from our guests today will be published in our forthcoming Volume 51, Issue 2. I'm Volume 51 Business Managing Editor, Brianna Matusko. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for more from the New England Law Review on Remand podcast.